I thank our veterans, and, and we're also privileged today. We have a number of uh, SFA cheer team here, so we're thankful that you all are here. Thank you for uh, all that you all do uh, as well on our campus and our community. Well, in this series, Exodus, we've entitled The Faithful God in the Midst of His Forgetful People. The Faithful God in the Midst of His Forgetful People. And the book of Exodus centered in the story of God, the Bible as a whole, this great narrative, this great story that God has given us, this true story, this account given to through 40 different authors, 66 different books, different languages, and yet the same thread of redemption all throughout. We're now at the story in Exodus, as you recall, as we center this book and remind ourselves of where we're at at this point to catch us up. In Exodus, God had faithfully kept His promise to Abraham. He cut a covenant with Abraham, this promise between God and man that He would bless Abraham's descendants, this old man unable to have children with his wife, Sarai. He blesses them with not only this multitude of descendants that will grow into a mighty nation, but He will give them a land to come into, this people without a land. But also from them will come a seed, a promised seed that through whom all the nations will be blessed. So several hundred years have unfolded since that covenant was cut with Abraham that was based not upon Abraham's faithfulness, for Abraham, Abraham believed God and that was counted to his status as righteousness, but based upon God's faithfulness to that promise. And so throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, we see the Hebrew people, the people of God wrestling with things and, and often doubting God, but God is faithful to His promise. He's faithful to His Word. He's holy and just and perfectly faithful in all of His ways, trustworthy with our lives. And so He promised Abraham that His people would grow into a mighty nation. And that happened in the place of Egypt as God would bring them there, blessing actually the Egyptians but as they would multiply into a mighty nation, hundreds of thousands in Egypt, Egypt would become threatened by their very presence, fearing an overthrow. God would raise up one named Moses from the house of Pharaoh. Moses would try to lead a revolt with the sword at the age of 40. That revolt would ultimately lead with the, the mocking of his Jewish companions. as He'd call them to follow them. They would mock him and say, what, are you going to kill us as well? As he rebuked two of them. Company with that, Pharaoh put out a hit upon his life that Moses ought to be killed. He flees, and for 40 years, he tends to sheep that are not his own. But God would call him as a deliverer, not as a young, strapping 40-year-old man, but as an 80-year-old man, to come back into the land and to lead forward God's promised people. For the time of sin has now mounted up in the Canaanites, this child sacrifice, and all the different sins that they had committed, now was going to be the time of judgment that God would bring in by the hand of the Israelites that He'd grown into a nation. They would be lead free. This exit would happen not by some mighty military battle or work of Israel, but by God's faithful, mighty hand in these ten plagues. When you hear plague, think in your mind a strike. Ten strikes upon Pharaoh and his hardened heart. When Pharaoh first met Moses, and Moses said, let forward the people of God, Yahweh, the Lord God, let forward His people that they may go and serve Him, exiting from Egypt. Pharaoh responded in Exodus chapter 4 and said, who is the Lord that I should obey Him and, and let these people go? Now, after ten strikes, ten plagues against Egypt, Ten acts of God's wrath against Egypt. Pharaoh's heart has so changed to going from, who is your Lord that I should fear Him? Who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel? 
to now go, depart from me, and bless me also. The entirety of Pharaoh's heart is changed by the judgments of God. The strikes against Egypt. What we see in the book of Exodus is that even though Pharaoh is though a mighty river, as mighty as the Nile, the believer often feels like they're this little boat being moved by the powers of the uh, corrupt uh, authorities. But in reality, Exodus shows us that they are actually an irrigation canal that the Lord has precisely driven. He drives it wherever He will, and just as an irrigation canal does from a river, it brings life to God's earth wherever it goes. That's how God works with Pharaoh. We note first this morning as we observe verses 29-36 through 36, that the Proverbs 21.1 is true. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. Consider this. The mightiest of the powers of this earth, the strongest men and women that have ever lived with the most political power and capital, the most authority ever given or seized unlawfully. Any person, all of their hearts, the Scripture teaches us. It's like a stream. As much as they may rage and think they can flounder against the purposes of God, they are but a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. That's what we see in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh has his mighty esteem and respect from all of his people. He demands things and they all happen. And yet Exodus reminds us that even though the kings and the ones of this earth plot, the Lord determines their steps. This is actually nothing new in the Scriptures. The Scriptures give us several examples of authorities and kings and mighty people through history that thought they were doing exactly what they desired, and they were. But ultimately... They were a stream directed by the Lord Himself. One example that we see of this is King Cyrus of the Persians. So if we were to take what we're reading here in Exodus and zoom forward 900 years, we would see that Israel has been cast out and taken into captivity, the Babylonian captivity. A generation full plus later, 70 years later, King Cyrus of the Persians raises up. And he gives this edict ultimately for Israel to be led free. In this series, we have the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in, destroy them, and the Persians to come in and destroy them. And King Cyrus raised up here, gives an edict that he desires. He desires them to go free. He has this massive, successful political power of the Persians. And yet we're told in Isaiah 41, you can write down that reference. In Isaiah 41, what does the Lord say? Who stirred up one from the east? Speaking of the Persians and Cyrus. Who stirred up one from the east? Whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Whom has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. What's the Lord say? I, the Lord, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am He. From King Cyrus of the Persians to King Artaxerxes. You can write down Ezra 7 as a reminder. As He blesses Israel, the kings of the earth, the Scriptures show us, do what they desire to do, and they may rage against the way and the working of the Lord, and yet they can never overcome or change God's good and working providence. His good and perfect will will never be thwarted. 
by the hand of the unbeliever. No matter the power, no matter the authority that they seize and desire to claim, they'll never be able to overthrow the working of God. Pharaoh is no exception to this. How does that meet you this morning? Despite all the powers and the raging, the ability to grab headlines, attention and influence over people's lives, nothing will thwart the working and the will of God. The holy, loving, just God. Nothing. Aren't you grateful? Now, there's not many kings among us in this room. And yet there is a King of kings who reigns over them all. But in this room, every one of us, myself included, is someone that often desires to rule my life. And every one of us in here, before you came to know Jesus Christ, you with authority ruled your life. But in reality, you were enslaved to sin. Scripture teaches us. Dead in sin. Haters of God. We may have looked nice on the outside, but in reality, we were rebels against the holy God. Our hearts raged. And yet, just as the Lord takes Pharaoh's heart, even though Pharaoh would make this incredible prediction of the future, as people, we make predictions of the future all the time. That's a part of what gives us such anxiety, isn't it? Our plans for the future, the, the college students ask, what do you want to do when you graduate? And then immediately they begin sweating. I think I want to do this, but maybe I want to do that instead. The senior adult getting closer to retirement is asked that question, what are you going to do when you retire? And they begin to plot, oh, I think I want to do this, I don't know. The Pharaoh makes a forecast of the future. Moses, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. But in... God's glory, He humiliates the plans of fallen man. Rather, the next time Pharaoh will see Moses, he'll say, Moses, as you leave, can you also bless me? Aren't you grateful that God humiliated our plans for our life? Aren't you grateful? I'm so grateful the Lord humiliated my plans for my life. Not all my plans set out. I'd do what I wanted to do or didn't like to do. How I would want to treat people, but the Lord is gracious. He humiliates our plans. He breaks us of sin and shows us the glory and the love and the greatness of God. His way is so much better and sweeter than any way of this world could ever have to offer. That every person in this room that knows Christ, we have people here that have pursued all the successes of the world and grabbed them and attained them and saw their vanity. We have others that have sought the pleasures and that this world seems to offer apart from the proper domain of God's rule. And they've grabbed them and realized their vanity. And the greatness and kindness of God is that He humiliates our plans as He humiliated Pharaoh's plan. His way is so much better than our way. Proverbs 16.9 says it like this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. When we look at the details of verses 29 through 36, everything that says to happen happens exactly how God says it will happen. Every single thing happens exactly how God says it will happen because He's the God that is sovereign over the future. This is why the Christian can have a hope that is a certain hope. It's an assured hope 
Because it's rooted in the working and the promises of God who holds the future in His hands. He's not gaining in knowledge. He's not evolving in some sense or maturing. He's perfect. And so the believer who entrusts themselves to the promises and the working of God sets with sure feet and a sure foundation, not because of our resume, but because the resume of the Lord. We trust ourselves to the promise of God. Not working to clean ourselves up. Many think before they come to God, well, maybe if I go to church, I'll get cleaned up a little bit more. Or maybe if I try to treat people better, that will, that will ultimately make me acceptable or pleasing before God. And yet the picture is that we all come short of the glory of God. The good news and the hope that we have as those who have trusted Christ, as sinners, every one of us, is because Jesus Christ is our righteous sacrifice. He humiliates the powers and principalities. He humiliates the logician and the plans of this world. That's the greatness of our God. He's the one that our hope is anchored in. He's the one. Aren't you grateful that indeed He stirs the hearts of the kings? In verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent, it says, with the people of Israel to send them out of the land in haste, it says. Look at verse 33. I think we should sit on this for just a moment. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. The irony is those that will stay in Egypt and choose not to come into Israel. Some of the Egyptians, were told, this mixed multitude. So it's not just the ethnic Israelites that themselves were saved from a pagan people and made from a pagan people as Abraham was, called from the land of Ur. But a great multitude will also come into Israel a number of Egyptians and other, others that have been taken and captive as slaves in the land of Egypt. They will exit. But a big portion of Egypt, a majority, will stay. But it says that in God's sovereign purposes, this is incredible, the plague, the tenth plague, the striking of the firstborn of every house is so great that the Egyptians will help them urgently leave. The Egyptians will be so broken that they themselves will help Israel pack and leave the land. Israel will have no opportunity for homesickness. They'll have no opportunity to, to regret and to decide, you know what, actually, I kind of like it here. God works in such a great way that, that we can't even comprehend all the ways that He works through the hurt. Aren't you grateful you know the God that never wastes a pain? He never wastes his sickness. He never wastes death. He's able to work through all of these things in His perfect, and permissive and perfect will. That's the greatness of our God. He works in a way that He protects Israel and allows Israel to leave the land without having an opportunity for them to protest and decide, no, 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 no. I think we'll stay here. Because when we get a little further in the story, listen to this, when they get on the other side of that sea, in under two months, Israel will say, we want to go back. God makes the plague so great that they don't have an opportunity at the exit. That's the greatness of our God. He stirs the hearts, the steers the heart of the king wherever he will. Second, as we look at verse 37 through 51, we summarize this with Ruth 1.16. The book of Ruth is a marvelous book. If you've never, if you're newer to scripture, you've never read the book of Ruth, you got to make time this read. It's a, it's a short read. But it's astounding. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. I've summarized our happenings here in, with that passage. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. 
For where you go, I will go, she says to Naomi. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now, I do want you to flip over your Bibles, if you would, to Ruth chapter 2. You may need to use your table of contents there, because it's such a small book. Ruth chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. And as you flip there, I want to give you some, uh, a little bit of reminder of the background of what's happening. Uh, Ruth lives, whereas King Cyrus was about eight or 900 years after this Exodus account. Ruth is coming about two or three, maybe 400 years after this Exodus account. So she's living in the time of the judges in Israel, where we're told that many in Israel are doing what's right in their own eyes. The people are becoming quickly corrupted. The problem, see, is not just the outward. The problem is also our heart inward. Israel sees this firsthand. And we have this account of Ruth who lives in Moab. Moab is a nation just southeast of Israel. And Moab is regularly butting heads against Israel. They're kind of a thorn in Israel's side. And while she's down here, her mother-in-law, Naomi, loses her husband and also her two sons. The tragedy. Orpah chooses to stay in Moab, but Ruth is moved to leave her identity as a Moabite woman, to leave her house and home and her circle of influence, and to pledge herself as a foreigner coming into Israel she pledges to Naomi to never leave her. That her God will be her God. Her land will become her land. They'll go as a people that don't have a land waiting for them. They have no one to redeem the land. Inner stage left, Boaz. Ruth chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. Listen to this. And we'll note the similarities to our passage here in Exodus. But Boaz answered Ruth, All that you have done for your mother-in-law, the love. For all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 400 years after the Exodus, it's the wake of death in Ruth's life. That will lead her to exit Moab and the Moabites and to enter into Israel. Tragedy and heartache will lead her to take refuge in Israel and to come to indeed to worship and to give her life to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who always keeps His promises. 400 years earlier, here in the Exodus, it is indeed the strike of death upon Egypt in the 10th plague that will lead what was called here this mixed multitude to join Israel, leaving entirely and taking refuge in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the Lord God. But there's stipulations in how they're to come in. Ruth is praised and noteworthy because she leaves it all and comes in to Israel. So all the foreigners, Israel's doors, listen, Israel's doors are wide open to the nations. But the nations that come into her are to come in by the blood of circumcision, we're told. That they can come and enjoy and partake of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but they must come all the way in. They must take refuge in the Ark of God. There's no backup arks. 
they leave them. Ruth is praised because she takes refuge in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She comes to know salvation. And so too, the mixed multitude can come in. And we're given instructions here in verses 37 through 51 that they're welcome, the foreigner, those that are weak and have no authority, those that were as slaves and servants, they're welcome to come in and partake of the covenant promises of God, of the God who's sovereign over all things. That's what the plagues have showed us. He's the one God is powerful over all the nations, over all the earth, over all the air, over all of time, over light and darkness, over death and life. And anyone is welcome in. But they must come in entirely by the blood. Exodus in a reading shows us in this way. That just as the book of James tells us, God is not partial as people are. God doesn't show special privilege to Moses, does He? Do you remember what happened when Moses and his son and his family were about to come into Egypt to lead forward and begin delivering Israel? Do you remember what God did? God was going to kill him. Moses. God was going to kill the deliverer. Do you remember why? Because his son was not circumcised. This cutting of the covenant that God did with Abraham and to Isaac and to all of Israel. And so now on the other side, as they're preparing to leave the Exodus, exit from Egypt, the same is true. The foreigner, those that have no standing or influence or power, they're welcomed in as well. But they can't just come in. They must come in by the cutting. They must come in by the blood. That's good news for you this morning. That's good news for me. We're not welcome to the works of God and to know the Lord based upon what we do. We're welcome because of the blood of the Lamb that was shed. And we as believers today, we don't continue to practice out of circumcision for Scripture tells us in this way that we've been hidden with Christ. It's with His circumcision that we've been brought in. Colossians 2 gives us a greater picture of this, that we've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. But through faith, we have been delivered. We believe that this is the regeneration and inward circumcision of the heart, a cutting of the heart by which we're brought into the community of faith in Christ. This is why when Pastor Brad said at the beginning, as he grabbed the connect card, that if you, and would encourage you, if you've trusted Christ and not been baptized, right on there, I want to know more about baptism. And we'll contact you and meet with you, give you more information on that this week. But aren't you grateful in that way that in the new covenant made by Christ's blood, you're not having to write on there, I want to know more about circumcision? Right? Aren't you glad that's not the case? anymore so how was the and i say that to strike this memory in our mind how was the foreigner to come in they were to come in because there was one law there weren't to be separate groups and all these different components and how they observed this intentional gift that god gave in the seven feasts and festivals to israel the feast of unleavened bread they were all to partake of it in one way and in this we get an insight in verse 42 that they're also to have a, a portion of this is to be a night of watch. Did you see that? A part of it, not only are they to eat unleavened bread, is a remembrance of how quickly all the deliverance from captivity and slavery Israel had from Egypt. But they're also to have a night of watching in the festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why are they to have a night of watching? 
verse 42 tells us? Because the Lord first watched over Israel. And the New Testament is filled with parallels to this idea. The very pattern of the God who acts first and the people of God responding and remembering what the Lord has done. What's 1 John tell us in 1 John 4.19? We love because He first loved us. Let's do it together. We love because He first loved us. Israel in the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to have a night of watch. Why? Because God first watched over them. Ephesians 4.32 tells us that we're to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. A response to what the Lord has already done. That's why it's good news. You see, we don't gather to clean ourselves up. We gather because the Lord has made us clean and holy and declared us a new creation. We're hidden in Christ. We're adopted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is good news for us. So we take courage today. The exit and all the things therein happen just as the Lord called them to take place. And Israel shall observe the Passover, and these things are to be a remembrance to the people. They're to come in, and they're to come all the way into these things. Aren't you grateful that as Ruth said to her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Listen, God did not make us to live in isolation. The foreigner was to come into Israel. One law for the people. One way of observance. God has made us to come into a community of faith. A local body with local faces and local offenses plugged in together to serve each other and to encourage each other and to bear one another's burdens and to point each other toward the way of Christ and to remind ourselves of the finished work of Christ, to rest in what He's done, and then to act and live a life of response. God, man, Christ, response. Living offerings for God's glory. Third, as we reflect upon this text this morning in verses 3-10, through 10, we see that this is a gift to Israel that God's mighty and faithful work of deliverance ought to forever orient the words and way of His people. Meaning, the deliverance from captivity was not to be a one-off in their minds. That every year, once they entered into the land for Israel, this was to be a regular slowdown from all the busyness of life. Slow down. How often do you just need to be told that? Slow down. The feasts caused Israel to Slow down. And this feast happening in the first month of the year for them. The liturgical year. Slow down. And remember that we didn't deliver ourselves. Remember that the faithful God to His Word, He delivered us. And why did He deliver us? To serve ourselves? No. He delivered us to serve Him. And so husband and wife, spouse, how can you serve your spouse in a way that honors God? Grandparent, parent, child, single adult, how can you serve God with your time, talents, and treasures in this season? Slow down. Remember these ordinary means of grace, the preaching, the teaching of God's Word, the gathering, the singing with His people. 
the Lord's Supper, the baptism, these ordinances. Slow down. Remember our delivering God. It's a gift to the people. Verse 5, and you shall keep this service in this month. Now, if you're working with a different translation, the, again, we have a wealth. The problem we have in English is that we have a wealth of good translations. It's one of the benefits of being in the greatest economy the world has ever known. We have so many translations. And the ESV translates this as, you will keep this service. The New American, again, they're translating at different kind of reading levels. They're looking at some are more thought for thought. Some are trying to be a little bit more literal and, and, and rigid. New American translates this as right. The NIV, the net, translates this Hebrew word as ceremony. You will keep this ceremony. The thing that they're doing is because God has instituted it. So I want to make this point very clearly for us. We want to sit in this. So if you're looking, you're like, well, why does mine say service and hers says rite or ceremony? What's going on here? One of the most helpful insights, I think, to this is actually in the expositor's commentary by Kaiser. He says, this noun was translated slavery and work elsewhere in Exodus, but service or ceremony for Yahweh. Israel was saved from slavery to Egypt into service for God as remembered by this ceremony. Now, I'm a big why guy. I think it's so helpful to stop for a moment and think, well, why, why would we do it this way? And perhaps that's you. Maybe you've just been going to church for a long time. You're kind of like, well, why do we do it that way? Or why do I? I don't know. I just always have done this. And maybe if you're new to church, you're kind of asking everything. You're asking why. Or you're like, who am I to ask why? I don't want to ask why. That'd be uncomfortable. But one of the words that we orient ourselves around that we say it all the time, but it's easy to not think about is the word service. So this thing we're enjoying right now together, this is called a corporate worship. What? A worship service, right? We'll even say it shorthand. Are you going to go to service today? The question is, when we say those words, it's really coming from not only this idea, but this, this very sense. Whose service? Who are we serving when we gather? What's the purpose of all this stuff we're doing here this morning? Who are we serving? Now, it's benefiting us, right? We're being benefited by the Word. Every, we have people in this room this morning that just barely got here. Not just, I'm not talking time, I'm talking just got, you barely got here. You had a rough week. You've had a rough season of life. And you're so discouraged. And the Word of God meets you this morning and is encouraging your heart. We have others that we've come just kind of numb. We're just kind of goes to the routines. This is what we do. Or I'll finally go. I don't want to be bothered about it. right? So we go and we're kind of numb. And the Spirit of God, the Word of God meets us in this different way. Others are discouraged. Others are joyful. And the Lord meets us in all these things. So we benefit. And we walk away from singing. And we may say, yeah, yeah, I benefited this morning. That was good. But who are we serving and what's taking place? And what can so easily happen, and this is on me, listen, this is on me, is without being clear in reminding ourselves of who we're serving, we will by default, I will by default, begin thinking I'm serving myself. Just as Israel in the ceremony, in the rites, in the act of service, they benefited. The nation, their faith, their hope benefited in what they were doing in this act of service in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the service was to who? Who were they serving? They were serving the Lord. They're serving. Remember, that's the whole reason the Exodus is taking place. Why was Israel to lead free from captivity? 
that they may serve the Lord. I got to make sure we get it. I know we're getting close. I know technically it's really like 1239 in your mind because of the time change. I don't know why they do that on Sunday. Surely somebody can get that change for us. Yeah, we still are. You're right. You're right. I'm digging it, Jerome. I need you. Okay. So here's what we know. They were led free from captivity to serve the Lord. That has to be ingrained in our minds daily. Every time we gather, that needs to be in our mind. Because if it's not, what we'll do is we'll walk away and we'll say, yeah, I think I would have done service differently today. I wish Brent would have preached for 40 more minutes. That's right. You're going to see it in your faces. You're like, come on. Let's run this baby to 3 o'clock. And others, though, we can also walk away and we can say, you know what, I, don't, I didn't really like the third song we sang. Didn't, he didn't care for it. Or I, I, really, I really liked that component we did. And we can find our hearts naturally coming out of our mouth reflecting that we believe the service is about us. Now, I don't say that saying we're free from criticism or those things. But what we ought to be saying, the very first thing is to say when we walk out of our doors together, when we go out in life of response after our congregational prayer, the first thing we should be asking was, did that honor corporately, did that service was that a pleasing service to the lord that's what we should yes it was and that should give us joy and secondly with our own hearts we should say did i please the lord in my singing and in my giving and in my attention and, and all these things? did i please the lord in that and that should bring us joy and we, so we benefit from gathering just as israel benefited from the service but the service is to the lord does that make sense so, so I want you to think about that. This becomes difficult because we have a podium here where I'm above you, so you can see here. But we also have musicians, skilled musicians that take time. And, and there can very easily be in our mind, and Pastor Stephen does a great job of this, but there can very easily be in our mind this thought of, okay, well, now I'm performing for you. The people on the stage are performing for us. I like that one, don't like that one. Instead of realizing they're helping to lead our hearts and our cries out to the Lord. They're helping to fill our minds with godly words and his, his word and what christ has done and we're setting our hearts on him as a offering of praise does that make sense and so we are the congregation we are the orchestra it'd be like tonight at six o'clock if we were going to go uh, to, to sfa and we were going to listen to this, this great performance and while we all got there let's say there's 30 percent of the of the uh of the instruments start walking in like 15 minutes late and we're like what we would be perplexed, right? Now, you know, we'd rather have some. We'd rather have them there than not there. But we would be confused. Like we would look at the maestro and we would say, "What kind of, what kind of orchestra is this?" And what we want to have in remembrance. This is why when we start our service, this is some of the why we have a call to worship to start our service, because we're putting a flag in the ground and saying we have had all kinds of different weeks, but we're gathering together as a corporate offering, as brothers and sisters in Christ to give an act of praise to God, to steady ourselves. God, man, Christ's response in the gospel message. The hope of hopes. The certain hope. And so, practically, I want to encourage you, be in the room when we start, whenever service starts. Set your alarm earlier. Fellowship beforehand. But, but come in the room to steady your mind and heart. Greet one another in here and prepare yourself to give a praise, offering of service to the Lord. So there's so many more right now. Now let me be clear. If you're like 15 minutes late, that doesn't mean we don't want you here. That's not it. I might be 15 minutes late. You'll know 
because I won't be here to speak, but it's better to be late than never, okay? But the idea being, let's remind ourselves of who we're serving and our gathering together. All right, so this is to orient the life of God's people. That's what we see even in our own lives today. All of these things orient the life of God's people. And all these things in verse 9 we're told, in chapter 3, verse 9, look at that. And it shall be to you, just as we saw last week with the Passover, with the meal, when the kids ask, what's going on here? Why is this active service taking place? Verse 9, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, and the law of the Lord may be on your mouth, in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Now you've seen perhaps pictures of Orthodox and Reformed conservative Jews that have the, the teflon, the little boxes that they'll have on their heads and their, and their arms. This is the very literal taking of this verse. And there's nothing forbidding that. But what a tragedy to have this remembrance of how God delivered Israel from the literal captivity in Egypt and to miss the promised deliverer, Jesus Christ, who was to come. What a tragedy it would be if you've spent lots of time in church talking about Jesus the promised Word of God made flesh. And you never knew Him. You never entrusted your sin to Him. You sang about Him, but you never actually knew Him. You tried to clean your own life up and make your life acceptable to God or thought you were too broken that He'd ever want you. You refuse to admit to God your sin and believe upon Jesus. To confess your sin and trust yourself to Him. Confess Him as your Savior and Lord. The defeater of death. The one who has ascended to heaven, who intercedes for us. That's how much God loves us. Sinner. True hope and forgiveness in Christ. The God who delivered Israel from captivity. And will deliver anyone that will come unto Him by faith. Isn't that good news? The Lord's deliverance was to mark Israel and it's to mark our lives as well. This leads us into our next steps this morning. In your bulletin, you have a little handout in there. You've probably already looked at it. In our next steps, the first question that I ask is, when's the last time I shared what the Lord did for me? Not everyone in here yet knows Christ. And so I would encourage if you don't yet know Jesus, not only can you mark it on the Connect card, but we'll have ministry leaders up here that we just want to pray with you and encourage you this morning. Answer questions. If you have questions about God, write them on your card. We want to know your whys, the difficulties of the faith. We want to engage that God is not afraid of our questions. But for many of us who, who do know Jesus, God has called us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us in Christ. And one of the ways, of course, we do that is, is baptism. We saw with Nihilus, faith depicted this sealing, this trusting in the Lord that we see depicted in baptism. But another is just to be ready to share the story of the hope that's in us in Christ. And so what I want to encourage you this week, if you would, is to write down, to fill this out. It'll take you a little bit. But this is a great bones for a three or four minute story how the gospel, how the Lord, the good news of who Jesus is has encountered you, how you actually came to understand grace, unearned favor of God. 
And then I want to challenge you second, after you fill it out, to share that with someone. To share it with someone. Say, can I share with you my story? I don't think I've done this before. And maybe you've done it all the time. But share it again. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. To speak of His deliverance. Believer in Christ, just as the Passover represents this remembrance in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we ought to be ready to speak of the deliverance we have in Him. And finally, even the most hard-hearted of people cannot thwart the providential hand of God. What did Paul call himself? The chief of sinners. But he found a God who is greater. His grace and mercy was more. And so we can sing as a church with clear hearts that all I have is Christ. What do we add to our salvation? Our sin. To a perfect Savior. He's worthy of our song. Amen? He's worthy of a life of response this week. Would you stand with me and sing to Him with one voice?